Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit. My name is Dan Galadner, and I will be your host, kind of. We're having a different host. I'll be interviewed today by our good friend, Bart. Hi. Hi, Bart. How you doing? Good. How are you, Dan? Bart, why are you doing this? Why are you interviewing me? What's Bart's last name? <laughs> Don't make him do that. Bill Murray. Just think Bill Murray, but cut off the Uri. Bill Murray. There you go. Yeah, he said it. <laughs> Troy, Troy, say hello, Troy. Hello. It's been a while since we've talked to you. But I'm talking to Bart now. So, Bart, why are you interviewing me? Well, Dan, I like to help first and foremost. But also, my wife is a teacher, so the uh, subject is of special interest to me. I think I asked you as well because you have a DJ voice. <laughs> Don't you trying to make me do it. <laughs> Uh, well, why else would I ask you? Come on. Do Danny G, come on. Get it going here, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah, the reason we're doing this is I'm the archivist for the American Federation of Teachers. And with the walkouts this spring with in West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona, they reminded me of a walkout um, by Chicago teachers in the 1930s. So this episode, I'll be talking about this specific strike. It happened during the Great Depression, and it touches on various subjects that deal with um, corporations controlling school boards, banks controlling school boards, uh, teachers having enough and enough and enough and finally taking it out to the streets, which is unheard of. And so I wanted to talk about it. I want to share my stories with you guys. Anyway, so let's get to it. Bart's going to interview me. Get ready, guys. Let's go. What sorts of issues were Chicago public school teachers facing in the early 1930s? Well, there's two things. One was the school buildings themselves weren't as you can say, wonderful places to work. What one historian called the difference between a prison cell and a, a classroom was just a blackboard. There was no real ventilation. There was no real cafeterias. There was no real toilet facilities at all. You had teachers teaching in crowded classrooms, um, usually about 40 to 60, sometimes up to 70 students in one classroom. And you've got to remember that also at this time period is just after the large immigration coming into America. So you had students who barely speak English, um, or they were just learning it. So you had a teacher trying to control all these kids uh, in crowded conditions. The, the children were usually showing up, even, even during the, before the, the Great Depression, uh, malnourished, um, in tattered clothes, and barely speaking English. So this is the environment that teachers had. The second part of what the teachers were dealing with was a system um, in Chicago that you, all, all, all reality is it was full of graft, uh, patronage, and corrupt. The property taxes paid for public education. About 90% of public education was supported by the businesses. And during the 1920s, they were reassessing the taxes. And during that time, they were not collecting taxes from the citizens or the corporations. And when they uh, announced the reassess, it was declared illegal. So the corporations refused to pay taxes. So the money was not coming into the schools. So the schools were borrowing from the banks in order to pay the bills. 
And this is all before the Great Depression. So imagine all of a sudden the Great Depression hits. The banks are not lending anymore. The corporations are not paying their taxes. It's a trickle-down effect. If the corporations aren't paying it, then the middle corporations are not going. Then the small businesses are not going to pay it. And eventually individuals are not going to pay it. Great Depression, no one's paying anything because everything's going bust. So that is basically the situation of what teachers were teaching in at that time. Were, what sort of other issues were the teachers facing once the uh, Great Depression hit? When the Great Depression hit, the property taxes were not being paid. So the school boards were borrowing from the banks. The banks stop lending money to the school board. Um, so what can they do? Not pay the teachers. So teachers were paid from the period of 19, uh, from December 1929 through, I would say, somewhere in 1934. They were paid nine times. That's it. The rest of the time they're paying in script. So teachers were not being paid on time. So their savings were being depleted. They were cashing out on their insurance policies, defaulting on mortgage. They were selling their houses. And the teachers, when they did get paid, were paying their debts. Now, the script they were being paid was basically an IOU. It didn't mean a whole lot to a lot of businesses because it was an IOU from the school board that was in major debt that was promised by the banks. The banks were not even taking that script. And when you did have an acceptance of that script, um, let's say it was $10, the business or the bank would say, okay, it's not worth that much. We'll give you $6 to the t on the 10 and that's it. So that's what's facing the teachers. And the teachers did not want to abandon the, the students at all. They had this ethic still with them, even though they were starving themselves, even though they were losing their own houses, they were still scraping whatever money they possibly could to feed these kids, to buy them clothing, to try to find some sort of uh, writing utensils for them. So the teachers basically were not only still respecting their profession, but being jerked around by the corporations, by the city, and by everybody else against them. So when did teachers start banding together to stage protests? Teachers always had unions in, this, in the city of Chicago. There, there was the Chicago Teachers Federation, which was the largest and one of the co-founders of the American Federation of Teachers back in 1916. But there was other unions. So there was the Chicago Men, there was Chicago Women High School, there was Chicago Playground, there was Chicago Elementary School. Uh, so you had all these different unions banding the teachers together, but broken down by various levels of their education or where they were teaching. Not uncommon throughout the United States at all. But in Chicago, the teacher unions, they were facing whether to become militant or status quo, and they chose status quo because they didn't really have much power. Not power at all, really, you can say, because there was no collecting bargaining at all. Um, teachers worked at the will of the school board, um, and they just had numbers to go to the school board, cozy up to the school board, and beg for whatever they could give them. There was no leverage. Um, so they started banding together a little more firmer as the years went by in the Great Depression. Um, people were getting more and more angry, they're competing with the, the business owners that formed their own associations that were dictating what to do for the city. And the major thing that citizens' committees were, which were run by the businesses, were basically saying, we want to cut education by a third. The rest of the public entities will keep around. But the, so you have this battle going on. 
and the teachers being thrown up against the wall. In early 1933, it was leaked out that teachers found out that the janitors, who were already paid more than the teachers, all of a sudden got a raise and were being paid on time. And this was all through patronage. I mean, these, these were like jobs that you got because you knew someone on the school board or you knew someone's cousin or someone like that. And that was the last straw for them. So immediately what was formed was the Volunteer Education Committee, something like that, organized by a couple of um, union members from various unions who realized that they must do something themselves. And it was organized mostly by a man named John Fuchs. He was a um, physical ed teacher um, out of Tilden High School. He was about early 30s, tall, handsome, um, muscular, and was could could really talk. So everybody loved him. The, the kids liked him. Um, the teachers liked him. And he was kind of the rallier around, got everybody together. And basically, we told the press was like, the city of Chicago is going to see the largest demonstration they've ever seen before. So it was like, he was calling them out already. And what he did was he started organizing teachers to go to school board meetings and yell, go to city council meetings and yell. Uh, he organized, the VEC organized a um, boycott of corporations and businesses that refused to take in the script. They started meeting at Grant Park every so often and held these small demonstrations um, that would go to the city council, march, you know, they called them parades. They weren't strikes or marches or parades because you had banners and everything going on. Actually, one photograph has a banner. It was like, is the city of Chicago killing public education? So they, they were organizing these small little demonstrations. Teachers were still very timid about going out. They had this professional ethic. They didn't want to ban their kids during the school day. And they thought it was unprofessional of them as well to go out on these, these strikes. But it started building and building because there's just so much more they could take. And especially with the janitors being paid you know, and getting a raise, that was probably it for a lot of the teachers. So what happened next? Well, in April of 1933, there were some larger and larger demonstrations. The biggest one happened, and we're not sure if the VEC had anything to do with it, but 20,000 children left the schools. Some with, you know, parents came along as well, and teachers realizing what was going on, it's like, oh, well, we might join you. We, we have no one to teach, we're going to join you. For two or three days, students led a strike, demanding that teachers get paid, that the school board um, reinstate certain, certain activities and classes and, you know, all sorts of things. And after about two or three days, the, the, the kids went back because they were being threatened of being expelled, and the parents were getting scared about that. So... They said, come back to school. But that was kind of like a spark. Here are the students taking it up, refusing to go to classrooms and, and marching through the streets yelling, going to uh, the mayor's office and basically demanding this stuff. So demonstrations started happening again on April 15th of that, that, that month, that year. About 2,000 teachers organized in Grand Park marched towards a bank owned by Charles Dawes. And Charles Dawes used to be the vice president for um, Coolidge. He was awarded um, a peace prize as well for the Dawes plan that was after World War I, unifying Europe again. So this guy was basically really well known, but he owned this bank. So 2,000 uh, teachers show up and say, hey, we heard you got a bailout. Where's our money? You owe, all this, you know, you owe the city school board this money. How about, how about help us get paid? He comes out from his office and looks down and says, I don't deal with troublemakers. You can all go to hell. 
Well, the teachers did not like that at all, and they started the ruckus, and the police show up and force them all out. But Fuchs going on this whole program, he's like, he sees the motivation going. He sees people are getting more uh, riled up. They organized on spring break to have more demonstrations, larger demonstrations. So on April 24th, um, they met again in, in the park, about 5,000 teachers this time. And it was a beautiful spring day. And when they started the march, they all separated into five different units. And they marched towards five different banks. So the police were kind of caught off guard here. So they storm into these banks, once again, demanding, pay us now. Where is our money? And you imagine a thousand teachers showing up in their official garb, you know, suits and ties and women dressed up as ready to teach, um, marching in there. And then you have a thousand in each bank. And the banks aren't that big, really. Right. So it started getting crowded. So a furniture would get tipped over. And next thing you know, ink is being thrown around. Next thing you know, some windows are being broken. And next thing you know, more people are yelling. And next thing the police show up and they start clubbing teachers, forcing them out, running them out of the banks. Uh, two days later, on that Wednesday, 5,000 show up at Grant Park. And Fuchs leads them back to the bank of um, the National Bank and Trust Company where Dawes works, demanding the same thing. But this time they came prepared for something. They brought their school books. They brought their rulers because they heard a couple days ago there was a little battle with the police. So when they show up, it's the same thing, breaking windows, throwing ink all over the place, turning furniture over, screaming and yelling, and the cops show up again. Mounted police as well show up, and they start beating on the teachers. Teachers are throwing their school books back at them. So imagine this kind of crazy anarchy going on. You have teachers with rulers smacking the police, and the police smack them back. Yeah, it's this pandemonium. It was nuts, I tell you, completely. But these are the kind of demonstrations that are happening, you know, and no one knows really how to control it or what to do. So the demonstrations are happening, not as violent as that particular day, but you still had confrontation with police. You still had demonstrations going on every day. And by in May, you had the World Fair going on, and it was called the um, Century of Progress. So the national press are all there. And they see these demonstrations happening of teachers saying, demanding to be paid, and they're asking questions. And next thing you know, it's in the national press. Teachers in Chicago have not been paid. I think at that time, they hadn't been paid in nine months or eight months. They're finding out that they are paid in script that's not being honored, that they find out that they're... And, you know, this is not just Chicago. A lot of, a lot of places, a lot of cities were not paying their teachers. It even happened here in Detroit just once. Teachers weren't paid on time and were given a script. But it was a different story in Detroit. But you had it all over. Like in Los Angeles, the, when the Depression started, first thing the school board did was say, okay, we have a Great Depression going on. Uh, people can barely find jobs. So it's unfair for a family to have two people working. So they fired all the married teachers. Because what's the point? And where was I? What did you ask again? <laughs> I was kind of babbling on there. No, it's okay. Um so let's yeah let's get back to the teacher pay. They, the Chicago public schools owed teachers something like ten million dollars at at one point, right? So when did they start getting that money back? Well, okay. Um, so after these demonstrations um, and and the embarrassment of Chicago having teachers being um, 
beaten back by police and having these constant demonstrations and the national press coveraging it so much. The mayor calls the school board in and the, the corporations, basically, because they're controlling the city now, in, in essence, saying, we got to stop this. We got to pay the teachers somehow. So they promised that they would pay, not everything, but they would start paying paychecks, you know, getting the paychecks out. Um, and Fuchs had held this rally, and they said, listen, guys, you know, we don't need to do these big demonstrations of violence. They promised us. We haven't seen the funding yet, but they, they give us our word. And most teachers, of course, are going, we've heard this before, but we like you, John Fuchs, and we'll listen to you. Um, in mid-July, there was a um, school board meeting. And at the school board meeting, what happened was another huge hit to the teachers. And it was quite, quite disgusting, if you ask me. It, uh, what happened was this, the Citizens Council, which is owned by, you know, run by the businesses, um, basically told the school board what they'll be able to do. And what they did was fire 10% of the workforce of teachers what they did was eliminate um, junior high school. What they did was eliminate half of the kindergarten classes. They stopped buying textbooks. Um, there was a pay cut as well. And that's just the top of the iceberg. There were so many lists of things that were going on that they were just slashing and burning the, school, the, the schools. Um, the, the superintendent was not consulted about this at all. And there, there's, there's a documentation of the people looking at this superintendent for, like, what's going on here. And all he could do was put his head in his hands and just basically remain silent. He couldn't even look up um, because he was backstabbed. The teachers were backstabbed. Um, there wasn't a huge demonstration marching through the streets, but the following week there was a massive demonstration in um, the state, Chicago Stadium. Um, I think it was something like 25, 30,000 teachers, parents, PTA, everybody showed up. Just disgusting. Where are we at? Is this still 1934? This is 33. 33. June of 33. And school's over. So throughout the whole summer, people wheeling and dealing, trying to figure out what to do, how to get this money back. But basically, they didn't know what was going to happen, the opening of school. And it when it when schools did open, it was it was chaotic. You you had you had less teachers. You had more students in the classrooms. You had some students who weren't coming to school because junior high school has been canceled. It's not there anymore. Half the kindergarten, so they had to jam all these kindergarten kids into uh, one room because half are gone. So you have to like start jamming them in. Principals had elementary school principals had to um, oversee two schools. So they were there for maybe half the day, and then do the other school the other half the day. So there was complete chaos, and it wasn't working. And so under this pressure that the PTA had, this, the teachers had, having the national press again there to see what was going to happen because they saw what happened during spring break in that April that same year, um, finally forced the hand of the school board, of the corporation, saying, you're, you, you're creating anarchy in our schools. And you have to find the money. Now, they have been finding money. They got some pay going again intermittently. It started to build up. But luckily, uh, federal aid finally came through. When, and when was this? This was, at, this was still in the fall of 33. So by 34, spring of 34, paychecks were on a regular routine. Now, 
back pay did it ever come it took years to get the back pay to the teachers um that took forever basically but and they didn't get it all but they were getting some so your your crisis of during the depression for teachers was huge in chicago that they were not being paid they were starving to death to try to help their students um when they did get paid they were still owed a lot of money when they got paid script it was not honored and what happened was, what the teachers realized, was that when they came together, things started moving. Their individual unions weren't really working too well for them at that time because they were all divided, divided in those different unions. So by ni- October 1937, three, four of those five unions that represented teachers merged into what is now the Chicago Teachers Union. Because what they realized was if they can't do it, they can't do it separately. It's this collective begging. So they came together in solidarity to form one bigger union. And uh, by all accounts, it was probably one of the largest unions in the country at that time. Um, quickly m- probably morphed when, when Ford and GM organized with the UAW. But it was one of the largest. Had about 8,000 members at one time when they first started. But it showed that we can do it together, we can do it. This was the first teacher organization merger. But also they were apolitical. In New York, you had unions that were run by communists, you had unions run by socialists, you had unions run by um, various political leanings, whether Republican, Democrat, or whatever. So you always had that division. But in Chicago at that time, they weren't really political. All they wanted to do was get paid. So they kept communism out, they kept the politics out, they kept socialism out, they kept it more just geared toward that. So you could bring all these different unions together saying, we're, we don't have an ideology on a, a political reason. We have an ideology to make our schools better. And that's what brought them all together to form the CTU. So let's fast forward to uh, today. You've touched, you've touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could say some more about, you know, the Great Depression was such an awful time and it's such a different time from today, what sort of things can we learn from the strike and apply it to current working uh, situations for teachers? Well, all right, as we saw, the Great Depression was a time where teachers had to come together and they, they proved themselves in Chicago. Um, Post-World War II, teachers, again, they, they took it to the streets because the cost of living was so high and their pay was so low and the school facilities were so damaged from neglect from the Great Depression through World War II. By the time we were, we were in post-World War II, the schools were being ignored again, and teachers, they, they, they couldn't stand it any longer. And you had one of the, most, the biggest strikes was in St. Paul, but it was across the country. There was about, from the post-World War II through, I think, 1950, 51, there was 105 teacher strikes, unheard of. 1960, when collective bargaining came to teachers, finally... After, after so many years of begging school boards for pay raises and for better school conditions, and when they, they got collective bargaining and started organizing, they still had a fight to get what they needed because they were still being paid below like a bus driver or a sanitation worker. And, you know, nothing wrong with those industries, but still, you ha- you, you, this is what they were looking at. And so finally they got to a point where they the bargaining was leveraging out for them and in these red state strikes that happened in the spring it, it was enough is enough 
And you can't push a teacher too long because a teacher, they're, they're in charge of your kids and they've hear, they have pressure every single day. And, and I admire them for doing it every single day they go in and teach these kids. And then there's just so much you can push a teacher because, you know, they're, they're on a short string right there. <laughs> and once you start messing with their, when they realized in West Virginia that the insurance was going up so high and their pay was so low, nothing was going up, and they were actually losing more money, enough's enough. And what's unique about all these walkouts in Arizona, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, it could you could see it as well with the Great Depression, what some people call the Loop Riots or the Loop Walkouts, the Loop Parades. What happened in Chicago in the, in the great, during the Great Depression is they organized themselves, and they organized around the community as well, and everybody it seemed was supporting them. Now, what happened with with the current stuff is they have social media to make it really happen fast. So you have these statewide walkouts where back in the 30s, it was word of mouth and flyers, but you still had citywide walkouts. So I think it, you can see parallels that when you push a teacher, a teacher will bite back. So, Dan, if people wanted to find out more about this story and uh, learn some more things, what sort of collections here at the Ruther could they look at? Uh, there, there's, there's a bunch. There is a bunch. Um, the American Federation of Teachers used to be headquartered in Chicago, so there's a lot of material that that is in our in our archives. We have um, a few collections that are called the AFT inventories. It was the first batch that came over, and those are communications with the locals, very old, dating back to the 1916, even before 1916, actually. We have a collection um, that was put together of all the AFT publications, so if you look in there, you'll see a whole bunch of materials and stuff like that. We have flyers, pamphlets. We don't have any photos, really, because I got them all from the Chicago History Museum, and they have the biggest collection for this this story, since they collect Chicago history. But we also have... um, the collection of Mary Herrick, and she was president of the women's local uh, during this time period. And so she has some in, in, in intriguing insight into it. But it's scattered all throughout, so come and let me know. Well, thanks, Dan. Well, thanks, Bart. Thanks for bringing me in. Yeah, of course. I appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, thank you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right, sir. And be caller nine right now on the hotline and uh, tell Troy Eller Ingris the phrase that pays for $100. <laughs> See, he's got the DJ voice. He should do this all the time. Yeah.
Uh, you're fired, Dan. But he has to. But he has to talk like that the whole time. Bert, Bert's, Bert's, uh, Bert's the new voice. Do the, the intro. Podcast. Do the intro. Oh. This is Tales from the Ruther Library. Bah, Tales from the Ruther Library. <laughs> Coming to you live from Midtown Detroit. <laughs> from the campus of Wayne State University. It comes in spurts, I noticed. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy out of you, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm exhausted. <laughs> you okay? She's like, it's all bad. There's nothing we can do. It's terrible. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. I'll make it work. And you always do it.